for your word. And this morning, even as we hear your word being proclaimed, we pray that you'll help us to hear and having heard, to understand and having understood, to obey. In Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. What does it mean to be truly forgiven? You've sinned, you've confessed, you've repented, but somehow you just don't feel you've been truly forgiven. What does it look like to be truly forgiven? My friend who's a doctor takes the time to chat with his patients to know them well, and he tells me that if his patients knew that they were forgiven, half of them would not need any medical treatment. Uh, I'm not too sure, I mean, what questions he asked to arrive at that conclusion, but I'm quite sure he's not far off the mark. You see, when we know we've been forgiven, right, our burdens seem to lighten considerably, and there's a sudden spring in our step. But what does it really look like to be truly forgiven? Today we want to look at a psalm that was written by someone who was called a man after God's very own heart. And yet he sinned in a way that brought devastating consequences. But unlike many, he knew what it meant to be truly forgiven. But before we dive into the psalm, I want to make a slight digression. You know I always do that. Uh, I like for all of us to first take a step back, think about how we might best read the psalms in general, and Psalm 30 in particular. Last week, Robin very helpfully talked about the different types of psalms that we find in the Bible. Some psalms are what he called penitential psalms, where the psalmist is very aware of his own wrongdoing and cries out to God for his mercy and forgiveness. Others are more historical reflections, where the psalmist traces God's dealings with his people in the past, in particular his deliverance of them. And yet other psalms celebrate God's wisdom and power in a created world and in his written laws and commandments. But this morning, perhaps, I want to suggest that another helpful way of understanding the Psalms is to think of them as depicting the rhythms of life, your life and my life. An Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, suggests that the Psalms can be broadly grouped into three settings. Orientation, disorientation, new orientation. And a flow of human life is located either in the actual experience of one of these settings, or it's in the movement from one setting to another setting. Okay, let's start off with the place of orientation, in which everything kind of makes sense in your life. What Brueggemann calls the satisfied seasons of well-being. You've been in such a place before, haven't you? Perhaps you just got married. I'm looking at you, Scott. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe you've clinched your, your dream job. Uh, or perhaps you got to the university of your choice. Whatever. Things have never felt so good, so right. That's the place of orientation. And then very quickly we find ourselves moving to our first movement and we move into a place of disorientation. And this is a time when we feel we have sunk into the pit. And everything around us is a disaster. Everything's gone wrong. And Brueggemann calls that the anguished seasons of hurt, alienation, suffering and death. You know the usual suspects, a failed marriage, retrenchment, cancer, 
death of a loved one. You get the idea. You just can't seem to pull yourself out of the hole that you've fallen into. And life becomes all dark and overcast. And then when we are most desperate, somehow we manage to have our second movement. We find ourselves by some means moving into a place of new orientation in which we realize that God has lifted us, uh, us up out of our pit and we are in a new place. As Brueggemann puts it, this is when there's a turn of surprise, when we are overwhelmed with the new gifts of God. Come on in. When joy breaks through the despair and we are filled with gratitude, filled with uh, a renewed sense of awareness about ourselves and about our, our God. And so we have it, the three stages, orientation, disorientation, new orientation. And, and for your reference, I've included in the sermon handout some of the psalms that fall into each of these settings. Well, think of Psalm 100, for instance. Uh, if you are here two weeks ago, John preached uh, from this psalm. And uh, this is a psalm of orientation. As far as the psalmist is concerned, our God is the one who made us. We are His. His good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness extends to all generations. And our response to that, we give thanks to Him, we worship Him, we serve Him. Nothing's more perfect than that. In fact, Psalm 100 was the psalm that Corinna and I chose to be read at our wedding. Now, think of uh, Psalm 13, which uh, Robin preached for us last week. It's a lament of the psalmist. And he's in despair. He's full of sorrow. He's constantly asking, how long, O Lord, how long? He's in a pit and he can't seem to get out of it. Now, that's a psalm of disorientation. And this morning, the psalm we're looking at, Psalm 30, is a psalm of new orientation. And so, you see, Brueggemann helpfully categorizes the psalms around these three stages of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. And recognizing the different psalms match the different times and different phases in our lives can help us to identify the psalms that will provide us with a voice and a framework for engaging God in, in all of life situations. This morning, we want to look at Psalm 30. And we are told at the outset that this is a psalm of David. Welcome. Come on in, come on in. It's always helpful to know a bit about the context that drove... Yeah. When you're reading a psalm, it's always helpful to know a bit about the context that drove David to drive the psalm. And while there's no real consensus about this, which incident this was, I'm persuaded that it was when David ordered a census of his men. We, we, we can see that in the story in 1 Chronicles. You can turn to that, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's page 386 on the larger print Bibles and, and page 199, 199 on the smaller print Bibles. 386 on the larger print Bibles and 199 on the smaller print Bibles. David was ordering a census of his men. As you're turning to the page, I'll give you a quick summary. We are told that David ordered a census of his fighting men and by doing so, in verse 7, we are told that David sinned and that God was not happy about that. But why would God not be happy about David ordering a census? Well, I think the reason can be found in Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. Uh, let me read for you. You don't, have to turn to it, uh, you don't have to turn to it, but let me read for you. 
The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there will be no plague among you when you number them. You see, God did not like census to be taken. Why? Because He wants Israel to place their trust in Him rather than in numbers. And so the deal is that each time a census is conducted, God inflicts Israel with a plague. And a half shekel is the ransom money to be paid for each person that was counted so you can avert the plague. Which is most likely why God was unhappy with David uh, for ordering a census. Because first of all, we don't read anywhere that uh, David ordered the half shekel to be paid for each one that's counted. And uh, so he's broken the command that God's given to Moses. And secondly, it would appear that David was committing the very sin that God wanted the Israelites to avoid when counting their people. They were depending on numbers rather than on God. And in fact, if you glance through the uh, three chapters in First Chronicles, just before chapter 21, that is from chapter 18 to 20, if you just glance through that, you'll see that David was, just before that, very much at war with his enemies. He was fighting the Philistines, the Moabites, he was fighting the Syrians, the Adamites, the Ammonites, and many other kings in the area. And you know what? He was winning all his battles. And on top of that, he was accumulating great wealth as a result of his victories. And so against this background, we can guess what's happening, right? David was getting complacent. He was starting to believe in his own abilities. He was putting more faith in his fighting men than in God. And as someone puts it, easy circumstances plus a callous outlook equals a fatal complacency. Easy circumstances plus a callous outlook equals a fatal complacency. And think about it, isn't that true for us today as well? Think of when you let your guard down most. When you most easily fall into temptation. Is it not often when things seem to go swimmingly well? When you think we're in full control of the circumstances around us? Just like David. And you know what? Things haven't changed very much in the last 3,000 years. And because of that, God punished David. You see verse 10 of uh, 1 Chronicles 21. He gave him, God gave him three choices as punishment. Either three years of famine, or three months of devastation by the sword of his enemies, or three days of plague by the sword of the Lord. And we're told here that David chose uh, the third one. That is three days by the sword of the Lord. And then God sent his angel to inflict a plague on Israel. And as the angel was standing with a drawn sword over Jerusalem, David pleaded for mercy. We see that in verse 17 and, uh, of 1 Chronicles 21. And what did David say? He said, And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But this sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. And God, in response to David's pleading, ordered the angel to stop. And David was told to build an altar on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. The Jebusites were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. And to offer a sacrifice there. 
and God accepted the sacrifice and we are told the plague stopped. But not before 70,000 men died from the plague. Israel paid a heavy price for David's sin. Now, with that as a context, let's look at Psalm 30. We can divide uh, this psalm up into three parts. You have Psalm 30 in your uh, service bulletin there. You can divide the psalm into three parts. First, restoration from verses 1 to 5. Repentance from verses 6 to 10. Reorientation from verses 11 to 12. Okay? Restoration, repentance, reorientation. First of all, restoration. Now, this first five verses depict a man who's been restored, and he knows it. His first words are about what? Praise and exaltation. I will extol you, O Lord. And then he paints for us three images of what it feels like to be restored. Uh, The first image is that of a man in a deep well, a deep pit. And you can understand why he might feel that way, right? Because of the sin, 70,000 men perished. Now, that's a huge burden to carry. I'd be devastated if anyone died as a result of my sin or my disobedience. But 70,000, that's, that's beyond my comprehension. So it must have grieved him greatly. David, who counted his fighting men, took a lot of pride in them. And in three days of judgment, 70,000 men were struck down. But King David was being restored. You see, when he says, God, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. The image that he paints here, drawn me up, is that of a bucket. Think of a bucket being pulled out of a well. Right, pulled out of a well. God was drawing David up, pulling him up in a bucket from this deep pit that he's in. David is being restored. Now, the second image that he paints for us is that of someone who's been stricken with illness. Someone very sick. And God healed him. And that's what restoration felt like to David. The third image is that of a, someone at the brink of death. In fact, his soul was already in Sheol. And that's just something like the Jewish idea of hell. And God brought his soul up and restored him to life. Well, if you think of Lazarus in the New Testament, right? And how he died and then Jesus brought him back to life again. You have a good idea of how David must have felt. And so the three images of God's restoration... And God's restoration was so significant for David that he called on all his people to worship God and to sing praises and to give thanks to him. Why? Because this man who has been restored now knows firsthand the character of his God. It is not some teaching that he learned from his systematic theology class. It is life with God 101. And it's learned the three facets of God's character. First of all, in verse 4, we see he knows up close now that his God is a holy God. A holy God is a God who is pure, who who hates evil, and who will be angry at all things evil, all things that are wrong. But King David also learned that when it comes to God's children, this anger is but for a moment. We see that in verse 5. God's anger does not last forever. And thirdly, What does last forever is His favour, His grace upon those who belong to Him. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have such a God? And because David knows he has such a God, he can confidently assure his people 
that weeping may tarry, may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And that's a good phrase to remember, isn't it? When life gets you down, the next time when the going gets tough, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So what does it mean to be truly forgiven? It means we can experience the joy that comes with the morning. It means that we can experience the joy that comes with the morning. Next, repentance. In this psalm, to begin with, what was it that David needed repent forgiveness? What was his sin? And for that, we can look to verse 6. David said, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Now, this for the Jewish mind would bring to mind another psalm that uses just about the same wordings. If you can, turn with me to Psalm 10, which is just a few pages uh, before Psalm 30. It's, um, if you have a Bible, it's uh, page 498 for the larger print Bible and 257 on a smaller print Bible. 498 on a larger print Bible and, and page 257 for the smaller print Bibles. Psalm 10. And if you look at verses uh, 5 and 6, I'll read it for you. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgment are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Now, just to give you a context, these words describe the wicked person, the one who is arrogant and who does not seek God. He's the one who is self-dependent. He depends not on God, but on his schemes, on his deceit, and on his might. And so when David says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall not, never be moved. What he's saying, in effect, is that for a time, when he was winning battles, when he was growing wealthier, when he was in his prosperity, the sin of complacency, the sin of self-dependence took root. He counted his men. He put his trust not on God, but on himself and his fighting men. And God was obviously not pleased with that. You see, he's been so gracious to David. He has made David's mountain stand strong. But now he hid his face from David. And, and God has withdrawn his fellowship and his favor from David. David was being punished. Now, can you see where that might be in our First Chronicles 21 story? David was being punished. And in his dismay, David repented and pleaded to God for mercy. If you look with me, in, uh, we're back to uh, Psalm 30. If you look with me at verse 9, what does he say here? How does he, how does he justify why God should forgive him? Verse 9, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Would a dust praise you? Would it tell of your faithfulness? You know, as you read this verse, as someone puts it, David's justification to God as to why he should forgive him is basically this, essentially this. God, you'll lose a worshipper. Right? If you don't forgive me, you'll lose a worshipper. That's probably one justification, but it's not the best one for the moment, isn't it? 
And I think David realizes it, and that's why in verse 10, uh, what does he say then? He realizes that he's only in a position to plead for God's mercy. If there's any forgiving to be done, it has to be based on God's mercy. And that's why he says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. The story is told of a mother who appeared before the French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. This is in the early 19th century. Her son had been guilty of a crime deserving of capital punishment. And she pleaded with the emperor to have mercy on her son. And Napoleon answered, but he has not done anything that deserved mercy. And the mother replied, that's why I'm begging for mercy. You see, in the same way, there's nothing that David could use for his defense. There's nothing he's done to deserve it. He could only plead for God's mercy. And for us today, standing at our vantage point in the 21st century, we can see salvation history clearer than David could. Our justification for why God must forgive us, it's not that we deserve it or that he'll lose a worshipper. Like David, we don't deserve mercy. But we do have Christ who has paid the penalty for us. He's taken the punishment that we deserve so that God no longer has to punish us. As a pastor puts it uh, so well, quote, the marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when they stumble and fall, they run to God and not from Him because they clearly understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated upon their behavior but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death. So what does it mean to be truly forgiven? It means that we know and we accept Christ as the only and sufficient justification for us to be forgiven. It means that we know and we accept Christ as the only and sufficient justification for us to be forgiven. This whole census incident has given King David a new orientation, a new perspective of the God he served. He's overwhelmed with the mercy and the faithfulness of his God. And now joy breaks through his despair. Where there had only been darkness, he sees the light. And so his response is quite to be expected. It is one of lavish worship of the gracious God that he knows. If you look with me, the last two verses of Psalm 30. Let me read for you. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You see, God has brought about the great exchange for King David. God has exchanged David's mourning with dancing. Instead of sackcloth, he has clothed David with gladness. And in a much more significant way, God has brought about the great exchange for all of us as well. You see, God has exchanged Christ's righteousness for our sin. And instead of curses, He has given us blessings. See, when we know we are truly forgiven, and when we know that we have been forgiven not because of anything we've done, 
And when we know that our being forgiven is totally undeserved, then our natural response is praise and thanksgiving. It was the case for David. It should be the case for us. You see, in such a time, David's focus is not on how sorrowful he is because of his sin. There's a place for that, but it's not his first response. In such a time, David's focus is not on making amends to the 70,000 families who've lost their husbands, uh, their fathers, their sons, and their brothers. There's definitely a place for that, but it's not his first response. Because to do so would throw a spotlight on David himself or on the 70,000 families. Don't get me wrong, like I said, there's a place for that. But David knows that the spotlight must first and foremost be on God. And in fact, in a different psalm, in Psalm 51, which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with, in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, when he committed another sin, and that's adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. You see, although there were clearly other parties that he had wronged, in that sin that he committed, like Uriah, whom he killed or murdered, David knew that when he sinned, the party that he's grieved first and foremost is God. And that's why after confession, he turns to worship with praise and thanksgiving, the worship of a gracious and merciful God. You see, we, are, we become very poor witnesses of God when we sin. And our fellowship with Him is often compromised as well. And it is our worship of Him that helps bring us back on the right track. So what does it mean to be truly forgiven? It means that we can truly and fully worship God. It means that we can truly and fully worship God. Let me conclude. The plague that was inflicted on the Israelites was stopped at the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite. You'll find that in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 21, verse 27. And there on the threshing floor, David, in obedience to God's word, bought that piece of land, built an altar, and sacrificed to God. And we're told God accepted the sacrifice, and the plague was stopped. Now the story of the census ends actually, not at the end of the chapter, but in the first verse of the next chapter. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1, where we're told, then David said, Here, as in the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And in fact, that's why I believe that Psalm 30, if you look right at the top of the psalm, you have the words, A song at the dedication of the temple. You see, the site of the threshing floor became the place where David's son, Solomon built and dedicated the temple. David wrote the psalm so it could be read when the temple was dedicated, remembering what took place there when he sinned and found forgiveness. And it was a fitting place for a temple because just as it was for David, the threshing floor, which was the site for the temple, became the place where the Israelites repented of their sins and found forgiveness through the sacrifice of an animal. The temple was where the Israelites could experience God's mercy and grace. It was a place where they were restored, a place where they were given new orientation. My question for you this morning is, 
Have you found a place where your sin can truly be forgiven? The place where you can be restored and given a new orientation, where you can have assurance that joy comes with the morning. And my prayer is that your answer would be, yes, I found it at the foot of the cross. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.